We have a really big God, don't we? I, I'm kind of a nerd, but I enjoy those kind of videos that remind me of the size of the universe because it reminds me of the greatness of God, how big He is. Uh, when you look at the size of the universe, you can, you can ask, well, why? Why would God make a universe that big? If there is a God, why would He bother to make such a, just a massive universe? Uh, a universe that, as far as we know, is about 13 and a half billion light years to the edge from here. And there's a couple reasons. One is just because he can. God is a huge God and he enjoys uh, showing his power, his glory. But another uh, reason that scientists have been discovering in the last few years is that it appears that the size of the universe is actually necessary for the existence of life. When you look at the gravitational constants and the, the balance of light and dark energy and all these different things, it appears that for for life to be able to exist at all, for the stars to have formed, for planets to be able to have formed, all that stuff for, uh, for the laws of physics to be the way they are, that the universe had to be the size that it is. And so when you think of it that way, you just see God's, God's vast power, but also His vast intelligence. That if He wants to make life, that He can make a universe that big in order to sustain it. And I think we needed to be reminded that God is much, much bigger than we are. He is infinitely more powerful, infinitely more intelligent. It's not even close. If you look at the original sin in Genesis, uh, Satan is, is talking to the first couple and saying, hey, uh, if you eat the fruit, you'll be like God. You know, you'll be as, the idea here is you'll be as smart like him. You'll be powerful like him. You'll know things that he knows that only he knows. And since then, since the fall, I think our fallen sinful nature is constantly doing that same thing, trying to puff us up and trying to pull God down closer to our level. That's the result, the natural, I think the natural consequence of our sinful nature. We just want there to not be such a big gap between God and us. We want to feel like we're not as dependent on Him as we actually are. We want to be able to give Him advice. And so you see that in comments like people say, and I I said these comments too, I'm not trying to pick on you if you've said this in my presence, but people say things like, I'm not sure God knows what he's doing, right? It's like, well, you know, he's pretty similar to me and he doesn't know what he's doing. I don't know what he's doing. Or I'll have people say things like, when I get to heaven, I'm going to tell God a thing or two, right? I'm going to ask him some questions and tell him, you know, some things about my life that he didn't quite understand, And I just want to say, really? Because when I read the Bible, people who saw God were on their face in terror. Like, they weren't asking him questions. They were just hoping he didn't destroy them. And and the the story of Job kind of illustrates that. If you know the story of Job, the basic outline, Satan asks God to be able to bring some suffering in Job's life, and God gives him permission. Job, of course, doesn't know the backstory, And so Job is wondering, God, why are you allowing these things to come into my life, these really big sufferings, these really big hardships? And so he says, God, I, wanna, I, wanna, I want you to come here, and I want to ask you some questions. And basically, the first 30-some chapters of Job, that's what's happening. Job's like, God, I wish you would just show up so I could, I could interrogate you a little bit. I could have a press conference and ask you some questions. And so finally, God shows up. Job gets his wish, like many of us wish, what many of us wish for. God shows up, but when Job gets his wish, it's like one of those things where you're wishing for, then you get it, and you're like, oh, maybe I didn't. Maybe that wasn't a good idea. Because God shows up, big, powerful storm clouds, 
And he, he says, okay, Job, I'll answer your question after you answer a couple of mine. Tell me, where were you? What, what does it take to create the, the universe? What does it take to create the earth? Tell me a little bit about how, how to sustain the world. Tell me about biology and the animal, you know, the animal realm. Tell me these things, Job. Answer some of my questions. And Job says, at the end of this, he says, God, I'd heard about you, but now my eyes have seen you, and I put my hand over my mouth, and I repent in dust and ashes. You know, God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And we need to remember that. He is infinitely bigger, more powerful, more intelligent. And by itself, that is a scary thought to think of that. But there is a being, and I think that's why so many people, so many, and even especially a lot of scientists, re- kind of reject this because the, the idea that there is a being who created the universe is frightening. And, and rightfully so. The Bible talks a lot about fearing God, that there should be a very healthy respect, even a fear about God. But the Bible also assures us that God is loving, that He loves His people, that His ways are perfect, that He is good and righteous. And yes, yet, yes he, he lives in this high and lofty place. He is transcendent over the universe, but He is also with the humble and the broken. And our psalm today talks about lifting up our eyes to see God in His glory. We're doing a a series called God's Playlist. And we're looking at a psalm that talks about seeing, having a big God-centered vision of reality. If you don't have a big vision of God, you're not going to have a big vision of life. You're not going to have a big vision of ministry. A small God equals small faith. A big God equals big faith. And so your vision, your perspective on God will determine how you live out your faith, how you live out your life. I grew up in the Midwest, as most of you know, probably all of you know that. At this point, I use uh, that example a lot in my sermons. But um, the worst thing about the Midwest is not the cold in the wintertime. I can handle that. It's not the snow. I, I, I like snow. But really, the worst part of the Midwest is that there's this thick, cloud layer that comes in during the winter. It comes down from Canada and just kind of covers the land. And and it's just dark and gray. And it can stay for a long time. I think when I was growing up, I remember there was a period, I think it was over 60 days, that we went without seeing the sun. It was just cloudy constantly. Just this cloud layer. And it's depressive. It's oppressive, sorry. It's depressing. Um, You know the sun is up there. But you can't see it, and you just, after a while, you're like, man, I just want to see the sun. I just want to see blue skies, and people get seasonal affect disorder from not seeing enough, getting enough sunlight. Now, when I moved here, we don't have that problem in L.A., thankfully, but we have a different kind of issue. We have smog, and smog isn't like a thick layer of clouds. We can still see the sun, but smog dims our perspective. It limits our perspective. And so where I live on, on Van Ness up in North Torrance, if it's a clear day from my, the edge of my driveway, the, my front yard, I can see the Hollywood sign, I can see Griffith Park, I can see the mountains on a clear day. But that's pretty rare that I can see that. And yet most days I'd say, oh, it's, it's clear. You look up in the sky, it's sunny. But if I look down the road, it just, it's just kind of hazy. And, and the funny thing about haze is you don't always notice it. You just get used to it. Until one day, it's real windy, and the, the, that haze, that smog blows away, and all of a sudden you're like, wow, is this what it's like to live without smog? I mean, you see, you see the entire basin, you see the Hollywood sign, you see the mountains, I mean, just, it's so clear. And I think there's a spiritual parallel to both of these. I think clouds, that dark cloud layer, that's when we're going through some hard times. 
And God feels distant because life is hard. Sometimes it's really hard times. The clouds are really dark and stormy, and you don't know if you're going to make it through. But other times it's just kind of gray. You're going through some hard times. You know you're going to survive. It's not going to kill you, but it's hard. And it just feels like you know God is up there somewhere, but you can't see him. And you're saying, God, where are you? I, I, I need you. I want to see you. And you feel far from God. But smog is a little bit different. I think smog is when you lose sight of God amidst the, the, the everyday life, just the busyness of life and what I would call spiritual pollution, just all the stuff from our fallen world, movies and whatever, just even news, that stuff just kind of seeps into our soul. And after a while, it just, our perspective gets kind of hazy. And we don't even realize sometimes that we can't see God, that He seems far away. We just get, we're going through life, and after a while, like, you know what? I really haven't connected with God in a long time. He seems really far away. That's what I would call spiritual smog. And God knows that this is a problem for His people. He knows that we are prone to this in our sinful nature in a fallen world. And so in the Old Testament, God set aside yearly times for the Israelites to leave their home, to leave their routines, to leave their, uh, their circumstances, and to travel up to the temple in Jerusalem to worship Him. There were several, seven major festivals that the Jews would, would engage in to worship God. Some of those were combined at about the same time, but there were at least three different times every year when the Jewish people would have to travel up to Jerusalem to worship God. And that may sound like a bit of a burden. If you've ever read the Old Testament and you're reading about all these festivals and all these journeys they had to take, you think, man, that's, a, that's kind of a burden. And from, from Galilee, which is in northern Israel, that's about a three-day trip to get down to Jerusalem. So imagine Three times a year, you've got to pack up your, your family in the minivan, and you travel three days to go where you need to go. That's a, that's, a big, that's a big trip, big journey. But in reality, the Jews never saw it as a burden. They saw it as a blessing. Because we, as humans, with, with this fallen nature, we often will not take breaks and retreats to focus, to refocus on God unless we have to. We just, we just keep plugging along. And we may think, oh yeah, God seems far from me right now, but we just keep plugging along. We don't, we don't have that desire to, to, to really say, you know what, I'm going to stop everything and I'm going to seek God. And so God knew that for his people to keep their faith, to, they, to stay emotionally healthy, spiritually healthy, they needed lots of mandatory retreats to give them perspective, to remind them what really matters, who is really in control, where their help really comes from. And so as they would climb the mountains to Jerusalem, because Jerusalem was set up in the mountains. It's like going up to Hume Lake, kind of. It's set up in the mountains. And so from almost anywhere in Israel, as you travel to Jerusalem, you're going up. And within Jerusalem, the temple itself is set up on a big hill called Mount Zion. And so as you travel up there, you're traveling toward Jerusalem. You're going up, and you're looking, and you see the mountains, and you see Jerusalem set up in the mountains, and you see Mount Zion with the temple on it. The Jews would begin to sing songs. They're called the Psalms of Ascent, the Psalms, the songs of going up toward God. And we're going to read one of those today, Psalm 121. So if you have your Bible, turn there with me, Psalm 121. It says this. I lift my eyes, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. 
He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. And so people are traveling to Jerusalem. It's one of those feasts. And so they're traveling up the mountains. And, and many of you know when you go on vacation, it's hard to disengage. It's hard. It takes me days, sometimes a whole week, to really disengage from my ordinary life. You're, you're heading on vacation. You're taking a break from work, and yet your mind just keeps going back to things at work. You're like, oh, i got to do this and this, and how do I solve this problem? And you have other things in your life going on, family issues, other stuff, everyday issues, and you're thinking, where can I get help for this and this, and what do I do? And the Jews are the same way. They're traveling up to Jerusalem to worship God, but they got these things in their mind. My, my, my horse broke his leg, and I don't know. I don't know. I didn't live back then. I don't know all the issues people face, but they faced issues just like we do. They're humans. So they're traveling up to Jerusalem and thinking of all these problems that they have. And it's hard to disengage, especially for adults. Kids, they disengage right away. They were never engaged. But, but adults, <laughs> we're, we're having to try to disengage from our responsibilities. And so that we're traveling, and we're thinking, how do I solve this problem? Who can help? And as they climbed up and they, they look up and they see Jerusalem. They see the mountains set before them. And they're, they're starting to climb up. And then as they see Jerusalem, they, begin, they see the temple shining on, on Mount Zion. And they remember, hey, my help comes from the Lord. He's powerful. And He's wise enough to make the heavens and the earth. He, he can definitely handle my problems. If He can make a universe, He can, he can handle my issues. He cares about me so much, He'll never let me slip beyond His reach. Now, that sounds, to many of us, very idealistic, and I get that. But that is the perspective that Jesus had. And I have to remind myself constantly, (laughs) the old WWJD thing, what would Jesus do? But I think it's helpful to think, okay, how would Jesus have viewed this? Jesus is the perfect human. How would he have viewed it? And, And that's the perspective that Jesus had on life. You know, think about the pressures that Jesus faced in his human life. He, he grew up in a, in a third world country. And some of us, we have an idea because we've, we've visited third world developing nations. We have an idea what it's like. But none of us really know what it's like to grow up there. If you grow up in a developing country and you're poor, you are just a few steps away from, from starvation. You are not very far from a brutal death. I mean, the, the, you don't have rights. You don't have easy access to food. You don't have safety nets around you. And see, Jesus grew up in that environment under, under an oppressive rule of a foreign nation. He was rejected because of his ministry, rejected by family members, rejected by friends. His, his hometown rejected him. He was tired. If you look at the beginning of Mark as Jesus starts his ministry, it says that from, from the morning until late at night, he's ministering to people. And then when he gets up in the, the next morning, he gets up really early to go pray because he knows he has to connect with his father to be able to get spiritual energy and so physically he's tired and then beyond that he's facing the prospects of a brutal death now some of us if you're fairly imaginative you can think of painful ways to die and then you try to put it out of your mind you're like oh i hope i don't die that way uh 
Jesus knew how he was going to die. He knew that he was going to be tortured. He knew that he was going to be crucified. He had, he, it's coming. And yet, when you read about his life, when you read his biographies, he never seems stressed out. In fact, a couple years ago, I was reading an article by a Christian psychologist who was at that time the head of the American psychology something. My wife could, I don't, I don't know, some important something. I'm not real big into psychology, but he had something important. He was saying that, um, that he is a Christian, read through Jesus' life, and he said, I've never seen a historical figure who looks so, so psychologically healthy. Jesus had all the marks of psychological health. His soul had a level of peace and clarity and passion that we rarely experience, rarely achieve. And I think that's because Jesus knew. He knew his calling. He knew his mission. He knew that his mission was to do his Father's will. And he trusted that God would take care of him and give him everything that he needed to accomplish his mission until it was finished. Jesus had absolute faith that that was the case. And that's what motivated his famous sermon in Luke 12, verse 22. You don't have to turn there. Just listen to me read it to my melodious voice. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food, and body is more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, and yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than the birds? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? And then down to 29. Do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your Father knows that you need them, but seek His kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the poor, provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and where no moth destroys, for where your treasure is. There your heart will be also. If you don't have a big, if you don't trust God, if you don't have a big vision of Him, if your treasure isn't in heaven, then I realize, again, this sounds like naive, idealistic nonsense. But this is the perspective of someone who knows that his help comes from the Lord. Someone who knows that he is deeply loved by a Father who is in complete control and who is bringing about the ultimate good. And that is the kind of perspective that God is calling us to have, to lift up our eyes and to have a big God-centered perspective on the life in the midst of all the things that are going on, work and family and politics and health issues. And we need to address things. We're not just checking out of reality. We deal with that stuff. But in the midst of that, to keep an eternal perspective, to remind yourself what will matter a hundred years from now, not just a hundred days from now. What really matters. Now, I realize that is easier said than done. And that's, pastors are famous for standing up and telling you things that are easy to say and hard to do. So let me give you three ideas for growing a big view of God. And if you want to look in your notes, you can. First thing is to have, have daily devotions. 
have daily devotions, spend time in God's Word. And I realize for um, evangelical Christians, the Bible is kind of the, the answer to everything. I get that. I'm not trying to be trite or trivial. But it really is absolutely essential that you get into the Bible every day. Find a very readable translation of the Bible. Your daily devotions are not the time to try to study and, and brush up on your KJV English or try to learn Greek. Find a very, very readable translation of the Bible and read it in order to see the, to see the forest, to see God's glory. Not just every single tree. So if you stumble over a word uh, that you don't understand, write it down in a journal. Talk to somebody. Have a discipler in your life that you can go to and say, hey, I didn't understand this in my devotions this morning. That's fine. Make a note of it, but then keep reading. Devotions are not a time to to study the minutia of Scripture at that moment. That time is the time to see God's glory, to read it and be like, wow, I see God's greatness in this, in, in what Paul is saying or what Luke is saying. See God's glory, especially his glory in the face of Jesus Christ, as Paul says. Jesus Christ is the highlight, the pinnacle of God's glory in Scripture. And so read it to see God's greatness with that goal in mind every day. That's going to give you a big perspective, a big God-centered view of reality. Now, there are other things to do as well. You can listen to music in your devotions. Music can be worship. Music can be just beautiful music that lifts our hearts above our circumstances. Um, You can use devotionals, Christian biographies, to see how God has taken care of other people. Um, I'll even say it it can be good to read through novels with strong Christian themes. There's something about reading a novel with a strong, strong Christian theme that kind of lifts my eyes, at least, and I begin to see it in a big picture. When you're reading the, the world of the Lord of the Rings, and you're seeing it from kind of a big bird's eye view, and you're like, hey, that kind of parallels our world, it helps you to have a God-centered, a bigger perspective on life. So the first thing is to have daily devotion. Second thing is to have weekly Sabbaths. Weekly Sabbaths. And I realize for some of you that may sound a little bit controversial. You'd say, well, wait a minute, we don't keep Sabbaths like the Old Testament. We're not doing that to please God. And I would say, fair enough. Uh, We are free from the need to keep Sabbath in order to be included among God's people. Keeping Sabbath is no longer a sign that you are among God's people. And that's what it was in the Old Testament. That's how it functioned in the Mosaic Law. However, I think the principle of Sabbaths still apply. If you look at the Sabbath, from what we can tell, it was put in the creation order where God rested on the seventh day. It's not a legalistic requirement, but I think it's a principle that says, look, We need to take a weekly day to refocus, to rest from what we normally do, to refocus our hearts and our minds on God, and to be reminded by not working who provides for us. That was a big thing for the the Israelites in the Old Testament, to be reminded by not working, by not engaging and trying to provide for my needs, trying to take care of these different issues, by reminding myself, look, God is ultimately the one who provides for me. He is ultimately the one who takes care of me. I don't do that for myself. No matter how hard I work, God is my provider. And so i got to take a break because I can forget that. If I don't take a break, I'm just working and working and working and working, trying to solve all my problems, and I forget, hey, God is ultimately the one who takes care of me. So take a break, take a rest, and then refocus your heart and your mind on God. 
And many of us enjoy on our, on, you may say, well, my, Sunday is my Sabbath, and Sunday is a good day for a Sabbath. It's a day when we come together as a congregation, we worship God together, and then we go home, and, and you could say, that's my Sabbath. And I would say, good. However, I think it's easy to fill our Sundays up with lots of activities. Lots of activities. And again, there's freedom here. We're not keeping the Mosaic Law. You can have fun with friends. But remember, the most important thing on a Sabbath is to refocus your heart and your mind on God. You need to make sure that you're doing that. That you're not crowding your Sabbath with so many activities that you're, you're not refocusing. You're not able to, to have a freshness and a big God-centered perspective as you go back into your normal work week. Third, take monthly retreats. And I'll explain that I don't necessarily mean every month you have to have a retreat. It just sounded nice, you know, daily, weekly, monthly. I didn't want to say tri-monthly. It just didn't flow the same way. But really, I'd say, you know, every three or four months, maybe three times a year, like the Israelites in the Old Testament, take a retreat. Again, it's not a legalistic thing under the Mosaic Law, but I think it is a good principle to be able to get away, not just mentally, which is Sabbath, we're trying to refocus on God, but to really physically get away from your routine, get away from your circumstances, get away from your normal surroundings, and go somewhere, be somewhere where you can just focus on God outside of your normal routine. There's something about that, and I I don't quite understand it myself, but there's something about it that helps us to kind of spiritually detox, because we take in so much stuff as we just live our lives, so much stuff from the world, and we're just taking it in. And so we need a retreat where you kind of detox and focus even more intensely on God. And there's lots of different ways to do it. I, I encourage you, if you can go to like a Hume Lake, if you can find a Christian retreat, conference center camp, that's fantastic. At least once a year, I think that's a great thing. Uh, if, if it's something smaller, if it's just going to the beach for a day, not to not to just hang out and surf, but to, to focus on God, to be able to spend time in nature somewhere. That's okay. Um, my wife does a kind of interesting thing. I, and I, I think it's a good idea where uh, it's hard for her to kind of mentally de- decompress during the day because she knows that the kids or me are going to, you know, bother her, pester her. And so what she'll do is, she's kind of a night owl, she'll stay up all night. And then, and, and just focusing on God, praying, reading the Bible, journaling, and then the next day she'll sleep in, and I'll take care of the kids. And I don't think I wake her up. I think usually I let her sleep. That is an option if you're somebody who can stay up all night and do that. But find ways periodically, I would say at least three times a year, to really get away, get a retreat. We need a big view of God to have big faith. If we're going to grow in our, as, as a congregation, if we're going to grow as individuals, we have to have a big faith, and that will only happen by having a big view of God. And so we need to seek Him wholeheartedly and do whatever it takes to remind ourselves of His greatness on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis. Let's pray.